0: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. So I'm your host, Vicky Telios,
1: And I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame. Today we're interviewing Matt Bernardinis from the Bio Medical engineering, engineering program. En- engineering. <laughs> engineering, physics, all that jazz, all cool stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're in your master's, starting your second year? Yeah,
2: okay. thanks for having me guys. I'm a... Uh... I'm in my second year of my master's, hoping okay. to finish up by the end of summer, start of fall. Nice. So in the home stretch.
0: What lab do you work in at Western?
2: So I'm currently working in two labs, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working at C-Star under the supervision of Dr. Patel. Mm-hmm. And I'm also working at the London Movement Disorder Research Lab under the supervision of Dr. Jog.
0: Okay, so you mentioned your um, your master's is in biomedical engineering. So how is that different from all of the other masters, and also your undergrad. Did you do engineering in your undergrad? or?
2: So I did not do engineering mm-hmm. in my undergrad. I did my undergrad in physiology, and I enjoyed it a lot, some interesting mm-hmm. stuff. But I decided when I was finished with it, I wanted to try and broaden my knowledge and to learn some new skills. So I decided to go the route of engineering, and I did biomedical engineering. Okay. And what's really great about biomedical engineering is that it's a very interdisciplinary faculty. So it brings in a lot of people from different sides of engineering, the software, electrical side, mm-hmm. and it brings in a lot of people from the science side with a lot of people from physiology and, uh, and other medical sciences such as pathology. Mm-hmm. And with this, we really get a lot of people who are trained in different areas so that they can collaborate and, uh, and hopefully come mm-hmm. out with some cool research, some cool products at the end of the day that can help progress the medical world.
0: Mm-hmm. So what product are you working on right now?
2: So right now, I'm not working on a product per se. Mm -hmm. My research is focusing on perception, mainly the perception of people suffering from Parkinson's disease. And uh, what we're doing to study this is using a computer toolbox that's essentially a two-dimensional, two-dimensional, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. right, (laughs) virtual reality system that essentially is going to be displaying different tasks on the screen. And we're going to have the Parkinson's patients and other control subjects, of course, doing experiments based on this computer program. Mm -hmm. And through that, we're going to be able to quantify their perception. And the big picture of why we're doing this is because we're hoping to be able to get information from using this toolbox that can then be used to design an easy-to-use computer program that could be implemented in home computers, uh, community centers, retirement homes, so on and so forth, that might actually be able to assess neurological disorders such as Parkinson's disease. So mm-hmm. that's essentially the product that we have in sight. However, right now I'm just doing the initial phase of research seeing, is there any differences in the perception of those suffering from Parkinson's disease? What are these differences and uh, what does it mean from a scientific standpoint? And the next stage would be trying to use that information to develop a, mm-hmm. a tool that could help with those suffering from the disease or to help diagnose the disease.
0: Okay, so that sounds pretty important. Um, so you mentioned perception a lot. So what exactly will your patients or um, the people you you um, enlist in your study, what are they perceiving exactly?
2: Cool. So with Parkinson's disease, we've seen that there is disparities in perception when these patients are trying to make a motor output in response mm-hmm. to their perceptions. So what I mean by that is if a patient, for example, is viewing or hearing something and then trying to move a part of their body in response to what they're seeing or hearing, then there's sometimes abnormalities with their, with their motor commands, with their movements. Mm-hmm. So this could be happening because the actual movement centers of the brain are not sending the proper signals to the parts of the body that they wanna move. This could be happening because there's a jumbling of information in the brain occurring from the sensory information to the movement information. Or it could be happening because there's abnormalities occurring in the actual perceiving of these sensory events. So the visual, auditory, tactile, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So what has been shown in Parkinson's disease is that there is deficits in the integration of the sensory information and the motor information. There's deficits in perceiving some sensory informations and producing accurate movement outputs in relation to that, but there's not a whole lot of work that's been done on just the base perception. So what I'm trying to look at is this base perception. Is there differences occurring in just the perception without any motor commands or motor outputs in response to these perceptions? And right now to study this, I'm focusing on visual perception of time, Mm -hmm. displacement, and speed or velocity.
0: Okay, so you've got three outputs there, I guess, in terms of um, what you're measuring. So how do you go about measuring that then? So you mentioned you're doing biomedical engineering. So did you have to make up your own methods for this project then?
2: Yeah, cool. So a member of my lab previously designed this two-dimensional virtual environment where you could do a whole bunch of different tests on it, be it perceptual tests or tests that are actually connecting haptic or touch-enabled robots Mm -hmm. to the virtual environment so that you can manipulate different things in the environment. But like I said before, I'm focusing on just the perception. So essentially to test this is I took that environment and I made some tests out of it that can measure perceptions of time, displacement, and velocity. So there are three different tests, and they're all really simple tests that essentially have different shapes on the monitor Mm -hmm. that are going to be doing different tests. For example, the velocity perception test has a circle moving at a constant rate followed by a circle with a hole in it moving at a constant rate. However, both of these speeds are going to be different and the subject is going to be tasked with trying to tell me which speed is going, which circle is going faster. And by doing a lot of repetitions of circles moving at different magnitudes of velocity, we're able to compile all of the subject answers and upload this into a toolbox that's a, a third-party toolbox called Signifit for MATLAB. And through that, it's going to be able to spit out a psychometric function, which is essentially going to have different parameters on it or different points that Mm -hmm. we can take and use to actually quantify the perceptual ability of the participant. And through this, we can compare the perceptual abilities of the Parkinson's participants to control participants. As well, we're also looking at the effect of some common Parkinson's therapies, such as levodopa, which is a pharmaceutical, trying to replace missing dopamine in the brain. And for those who don't know, a large factor of Parkinson's disease is dopamine-producing cells in the brain are actually dying. Mm -hmm. And this leads to reduced amounts of dopamine acting on certain parts of the brain. So we're testing these patients both on and off of the drug, seeing the effect of the drug, as well as deep brain stimulation, which is essentially inserting an electrode into a portion of the brain and sending little electric pulses that essentially hopes to improve the symptoms of the disease. So we're seeing what the effect of this has on the perception as well.
1: Okay, cool. I mean, um, there's a lot of things going on, so a lot of variables to yeah. play in there. Um, but it's really cool how you're going to come up with your own test, and the whole mm-hmm. thing is like from from scratch, uh, it seems. So That's really that's really interesting how you're able to do that. Yeah.
2: Not quite. I had help <laughs> from a member of my lab to make the environment, but... Well, he made the whole thing. I didn't have help. Wow. He, he made the <laughs> environment. I made the specific test on the environment that we'd be doing. But yeah.
1: So this is, this is software. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. It's a
2: software. And uh,
0: that's where the engineering part comes into play then, right? The Correct. Software? Okay. Mm-hmm. I see. <laughs>
2: so I've been out of the engineering for a while now because mm-hmm. I've been doing just patient testing, the clinical research aspect side okay. of the study. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so not too much engineering. Instead, just, you know, yeah. standard run of the mill. Working testing with the your patients.
1: patients? <laughs> so, maybe I was just thinking, like, uh, maybe run us through like the average patient comes in and then what sure, do they do? Sure. So, we'll meet the
2: patient and, uh, you know, shake hands. How do okay. you do? <laughs> and then we'll bring them over to the lab. And before we start with the actual experiments, there's a couple diagnostic tests that we run on the patients. So, with Parkinson's disease, most people know it as a movement disorder. It Mm -hmm. affects people in different ways, but a lot of people get mm, tremors when they have the disease. A lot of people have limb stiffness. A lot of people have difficulty initiating movement, things along the lines of this. But not as many people know that there's a whole slew of non-motor disparities that are also occurring in the disease, which leads to my research why I'm looking at some non-motor aspects that might be affected in the disease. So, saccades or rapid eye movements are oftentimes affected in Parkinson's disease, as is smooth pursuit, or smoothly moving your eyes to keep your gaze on a moving object. This is called ocular motor controls, and these is oftentimes thrown off in Parkinson's disease. So the first diagnostic test is making sure there's no severe ocular motor deficits. And Mm -hmm. the reason why we're doing this is all of our tests are visually based. If the patient is having trouble seeing things Mm -hmm. visually, It could throw off our results (laughs) a little bit. So we do that test. And then we also do pretty much the standard Parkinson's scaling diagnostic test. And this is the unified Parkinson's disease rating scale. Mm -hmm. So with this test, it's it's essentially a movement test. So we have the subject do a bunch of arm movements, leg movements. We assess their stiffness, their walking, so on and so forth. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And uh, this is essentially what whoever is taking care of the patient is going to do is they're going to run this test to see how the disease is progressing to see if it's Mm -hmm. staying the same getting worse so on and so forth so we do this diagnostic test as well and we do one more test um, the Montreal cognitive assessment and this test is essentially to make sure that there's no dementia in the patients because that could also have some (laughs) effects on the results so we do those diagnostic tests and then we get right into the experiment so we have the patients come off of their Parkinson's medication they're using levodopa, this means that they don't take their medication for 12 hours prior to testing, at least. And if they're using deep brain stimulation, then this means we're going to go to a member of my lab who's qualified in using the deep brain stimulation devices, as I'm not, (laughs) and uh, turning off the device. And we wait for about 45 minutes to an hour because it can have some some latent effects on the patients. And then we'll start with the displacement perception, temporal perception, and velocity perception tests. And, mm-hmm. and we run through these, and then at about lunchtime uh, the patients will get an hour break, so this is after mm-hmm. they've run through the experiments once, and they'll get either their DBS device turned back on, or they'll get um, a standard dose of levodopa. Mm-hmm. And then after their hour lunch break, we'll run through the UPDRS test again, just mm-hmm. to see the effect of the medication on their movement disparities, and we'll run through the perceptual tests again. So it's a, it's a long day, but it's just the one day that we have the patients come in. Okay.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, because how long would that take? Then you're, they're getting lunch breaks, yeah. it's a morning afternoon thing.
2: So we provide as many breaks as the patient need throughout the testing, okay. as, as well as the one hour break in the middle. So mm-hmm. the full test takes around six to seven hours. So this okay. is yeah. with all the diagnostics and running through the experiment twice. So it's mm-hmm. a full day um, that the patients are in with us mm-hmm. doing their testing.
1: Are you actually doing any uh, blood? Are you taking any blood and any markers? Nothing. No, when don't need to do in. any of that. So really, it's going to be... Mm-hmm. I guess well, they're
0: already diagnosed, right? Yep, yeah. I suppose. Mm-hmm.
1: I, and, yeah, and you're not intervening, you're diagnosing. So if you had to do an intervention, you'd have to measure markers. Exactly.
2: Yeah. So the purpose of my work isn't to provide a direct benefit to the participants coming in. Mm-hmm. We're looking to see if there's any perceptual abnormalities happening in Parkinson's disease that we hope that this can give us mm-hmm. some insight on to what's actually going on in the brain. Yeah, just and as a baseline. Exactly, learn more about the disease, and um, maybe one day we'll be able to create a diagnostic tool out of this information. But right now we're just at the infancy stage. What's this, what's going on? Why is this going on? What's happening in the brain?
0: So what is going on? So I'm you're at the end of your master's, you're uh, hopefully finishing up. Do you have any nice results, I guess? I got
2: some nice results. Okay, that's uh, always good. I still have a lot of work to do too, <laughs> not quite there yet. But what we're seeing, so with regards to temporal perception, this has already <laughs> been tested before. And the reason why we wanted to test it again is because if we think about velocity from a mathematical standpoint, mm-hmm. it involves time and displacement. Right. So we wanted to do all three of these tests to see if we can draw any information that might be regarding the integration of time and displacement towards mm-hmm. perceiving velocity. And uh, we just wanted to make a complete picture Of velocity when we were doing the experiment. Mm -hmm. So with regards to time, um, there is some research that's been done and it shows that most of the research is showing that it's affected in Parkinson's disease. However, it is interesting because some studies say that levodopa helps it. That once Mm -hmm. you take levodopa, your time perception is going to be brought closer to normal levels. Some papers show that, in fact, Parkinson's patients don't have time perception abnormalities, and their levodopa is actually hindering them because this is affecting some neural regions that Mm -hmm. is going to lead to inaccurate perception of time. So, again, there's not fully conclusive results on time perception, but what we're seeing with our work is coinciding with most of the research, and that's that in the range of about a second to two seconds, Mm-hmm. we're seeing that there is deficits in the perception of time. However, when we look at um, the range of milliseconds, there's not significant impairments in the perception of time. Mm-hmm. So this is a, this is an interesting finding. And, and also, um, with a lot of these visual perceptions, they generally are linear in the sense that as you increase the magnitude, mm-hmm. the uh, perceptual or, or the magnitude... Of, pers- of change that's necessary to perceive a difference mm-hmm. is also going to grow at the same rate. And that's okay. called Weber's Law. So if you increase the stimulus, then your ability to discriminate a stimuli from whatever that stimulus you are increasing or decreasing mm-hmm. is also going to grow or decrease at the same proportion.
1: You gave, you gave us a kind of a cool example with flies mm-hmm. earlier. And uh, anyone who knows me would know that was interesting for me. <laughs> Can you maybe uh, give us an example of this? Uh, what was it? Weber's? Weber's Law? Weber's yeah. Law. And sure. how like, ex- practically that might play out. Sure. In a, like a-
2: <laughs> Billy is a boy. Okay. And Billy likes flies. He likes them so much he has two of them. So, <laughs> Billy has labeled his flies. He's tethered a little string, non-invasively, of course, and had a little flag. One says one and the other says two. He lets fly number one go, and he's seeing this fly move across his vision. And he's saying, wow, that fly looks like it's going 10 centimeters a second, excellent. (laughs) And then fly two is moving. Now fly one was in fact going 10 centimeters a second, but fly two is now going 11 centimeters per second. Billy goes, they're going the same speed, because he can't tell or differentiate between that one centimeter per second. Mm when fly one again flies at 10 centimeters per second, but fly two is moving at 12 centimeters per second, Billy goes, whoa, fly two is speeding. He's going way faster than fly one. So he needed two centimeters of seconds greater of a speed than the 10 centimeters per Mm -hmm. second of fly one Mm -hmm. to be able to differentiate the speeds. Now fly two had a little bit of coffee that Billy dripped on the table, and it's now moving 20 centimeters per second. Fly number two had that as well. And on the first run, fly number two is moving 22 centimeters per second. Billy goes, they're moving the same speed. But then when he does the test again, and fly one is moving 20 centimeters per second, fly two is actually now moving 24 centimeters per second. And Billy's going, ah, I saw the change. So it took him, in this case, four centimeters per second difference Mm -hmm. from that 20 centimeter per second speed of fly number one to differentiate the speed Mm -hmm. between the two. So Mm
0: -hmm.
2: if there's an increase in your speed of the standard stimuli or a stimuli that's going to be compared to the other stimuli, there's going to be a proportional increase as well with the amount of magnitude change that's necessary to differentiate the two.
0: So you've described how speed is is perceived in control patients, I guess, with your lovely analogy with Billy and his flies. Um, So how does that get portrayed in Parkinson's patients, and what are the differences? In, uh, in healthy
2: individuals, that concept is kind of a rough way of describing Weber's Law, mm-hmm. and it holds true for the vast majority of perceptions that have been studied. But what we're seeing in the time perception with, uh, with the different magnitudes having different effects of Parkinson's individuals either being worse at perceiving time or not worse at perceiving time, there might be deviations from this Weber's law. Mm -hmm. And a reason for this could be as simple as there's different neural mechanisms that are used to perceive time in a millisecond range, a second range, a minute range, an hour range, or it could be something else that's leading to this deviation from Weber's law. Now, what's interesting is that we've found this is occurring as well in both velocity and displacement perception, where at different magnitudes, Um, we're going to have a different result based on the perceptual abilities of the Parkinson's patient. So I suppose it makes more sense in relation to velocity perception because Mm -hmm. with velocity perception, we tested a magnitude in the range of 10 centimeters per second and a magnitude in the range of 25 centimeters per second. And in that 10 centimeters per second range, there was abnormalities displayed in the Parkinson's patients both on and off of their medications. But we didn't see any of that at the 25 centimeter per second range and uh i mean i'm not 100 sure why but an idea i have is that at this slower speed this is more so in the range of the seconds if we're taking into account the time perception and if time perception is used in the mental calculation of speed then it makes sense if it's going to be abnormal when just perceiving base time it's going to be abnormal when perceiving velocity as well Mm -hmm. Um, but again, it could be a deviation from Weber's Law, where for whatever reason there's not a linear trend in um, the magnitude of the stimuli and the perceptual capabilities. And I suppose in displacement as well, we saw abnormalities at the larger magnitude of mm-hmm. displacement distances, mm-hmm. and this abnormality was seen both on and off of Parkinson's medication. However, off of, I mean, sorry, at the lower magnitude of 10 centimeters, we didn't see any of these differences compared to the controls. And what's interesting about the displacement perception results is that uh, what, what we're seeing is that there is displacement perception abnormalities at least in some magnitudes of displacement distances in Parkinson's disease. And the type of displacement that we were studying is, I guess you could refer to it as allocentric displacement or using mm-hmm. an allocentric frame. And what I mean by that is that it's uh, it's a displacement distance in regards to an object and another object. So both of these objects were virtual circles on a computer monitor, mm-hmm. however, an egocentric point of reference would be essentially an object in relationship to yourself. Mm-hmm. So a water bottle is two feet away from me, but what we were doing was instead allocentric and we're seeing... That circle was ten centimeters away from that other circle, or mm-hmm. something along the lines of that. And so, this information is actually used for accurate perception of objects and object features. Mm-hmm. So the brain processes this, and I believe the temporal pathways, dorsal temporal processing pathways.
1: Okay. I might be <laughs> yeah. wrong
2: on that, but whatever. I'll take it for we'll now. Yeah. Take <laughs> it.
1: There's a pathway there. Yeah. Someone named it. Yeah, yeah.
2: And the visual information is essentially processed down to. Um, the IT center of the brain. And the IT center is basically Mm -hmm. involved in object perception. So I know that's a line because the IT center of my brain that's coding to lines Mm -hmm. can see that line. It could see its mane. It could see the distance of its legs from each other, the Mm -hmm. size of its tail. It takes all of this line information, edge information, distance information, packages it together, and then I know it's a line now. (laughs) So what previous studies showed in Parkinson's disease is that Um, Parkinson's individuals actually were impaired in the perception of objects and object features. And what we're showing where we're not really showing any objects just that there's displacement abnormalities, this is providing more evidence that these abnormalities are due to something going wrong in this perceptual pathway used for defining objects. Mm -hmm. And then this coincides with other um, past work on Parkinson's individuals such as a study that showed individuals with Parkinson's have impairments in their ability to uh, perceive facial emotion. So Mm -hmm. they're not able to recognize different emotions in the face as accurately as the control subjects. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, this is not definite reason for this occurring. Mm -hmm. It could be um, due to other abnormalities, such as the eye movement impairments. If you're not able to scan an object Mm -hmm. as accurately, then it's going to be harder to put those pieces together if you can't Mm -hmm. find all the pieces, right? But since we're trying to rule out all these oculomotor deficits, Mm -hmm. it is pretty interesting results that we're finding. Right. And with regards to the velocity perception, again, it's uh, it's interesting that we're finding abnormalities uh, mainly because this is what we were most interested in. It's the most relevant with real world instances, I believe, at least, because... Mm velocity perception is important for things such as driving your car or crossing a busy intersection, for sure. among many other things. So, if this is abnormal, then it's gonna give us a better idea of uh, what's occurring during Parkinson's disease and how it's having a negative effect Mm -hmm. on their life. However, what was really interesting is that in both the temporal and displacement perception tests, we didn't see any differences caused by the use of levodopa medication. Mm -hmm. At both the greater magnitude of velocity 25 centimeters per Mm -hmm. second and the lesser one at 10 centimeters per second levodopa was actually impairing their velocity perception and this is cool because even though there was not significant impairments in the perception of velocity at that 25 centimeter per second range Mm -hmm. we still saw significant impairments when they were on levodopa compared to when they were not on levodopa Hmm. so did
1: you hold on did you give did you give levodopa to the control
2: no, 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 not the <laughs> control.
1: I'm just wondering. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, I know there there are people doing a study. Um, I think so. Yeah, yeah that there's, I know a guy true. who's doing a study, and they do they give in one of their control groups, they actually give levodopa to the controls too. Oh, so it's not like you couldn't, but that I mean, yeah. I mean, let me see if like generally it was it in something we know for sure doesn't have Parkinson's.
2: Yeah, disease. yeah. So
1: like, is it throwing off something that's wrong yeah. already there already? Is throwing a wrench in the works that's already messed up? Or the
2: thing that might be troublesome about that idea is, uh, with Parkinson's disease, the idea of levodopa is to restore the missing dopamine Mm -hmm. in the brain. But if you already have normal amounts of dopamine, you're not going to be restoring it. Instead, you're going to be overdriving it. But Mm -hmm. to your point, what might be happening is levodopa might be boosting you to maybe a little bit higher than these baseline dopamine levels. Mm -hmm. And this might have an effect on the perception of velocity. So that's just something that I thought was really interesting, the work that came out of it. Um, It's showing that these very common medications, levodopa is generally first-line treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's, I would say, at least from what I see in the neurology clinic, by far the most commonly used treatment for, for Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. It's good. It has excellent effects for a lot of people on their movement disorders. But generally, studies show that it has minimum to no effect on these non-movement disorders. And there has been some perceptual studies regarding proprioception that I've read. And proprioception mm-hmm. is essentially your internal sense of your limb position. So Mm -hmm. if my arm is directly above my head, I know it's there when I close my eyes, even if somebody's moved it for me, just because of my proprioceptive receptors. And essentially, up was shown to impair this proprioception. So it has been shown in the past to impair certain perceptions, and it looks like we're seeing that again with the velocity perception. So that's something that's, uh, yeah, something interesting to come out of uh, the research, and I'm excited to see what's Mm -hmm. gonna happen when I test some more deep brain stimulation participants to see if this has the same effect, or if deep brain stimulation doesn't have a negative
0: effect. Mm -hmm. I think that's incredibly fascinating, and we can talk about this all day, but we are running out of time. And um, before we go, I just want to ask you if there is a way that people can contact your lab, if they want to know more about your work or your lab's work, um, how can they contact you?
2: You can always shoot me an email at mberna26 at uwo.ca also, if you want to learn more about my lab, CSTAR, mm-hmm. then you could just Google capital C, capital S, capital T, capital A, capital R, <laughs> and it's probably your first link. And that'll show you not only some of the work that I'm doing, but also interest in work that other people in my lab are doing. There's a lot of really cool robotic studies going on, so I definitely recommend checking that out. And as well, with uh, regards to the London Movement Disorder Clinic, just Google that as well, and it should probably be the first hit on Google. And then you can see the work... Uh, going on in this very clinically dependent clinical heavy lab. So very interesting work going on both of those labs. So yeah, check it out. See what's going on.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt, for being on our show. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks. And this has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students. Um, if you would like to be a host or be involved with GradCast at all, you can email us at gradcastradio at, at gmail.com. You can also listen to our show at 6 p.m. on Tuesdays on CHRW 94.9 FM. That's Western's radio station. As well, you can listen to our podcast wherever you can listen to your amazing podcasts. That's on iTunes or Google Play. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Peace. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.